Okay, here we go. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. Good evening and welcome to the Connecticut Mirror's legislative wrap-up and also a big look ahead at the political year to come with Mark Pazniokas. I'm John Dankosky. Mark is, of course, the Capitol Bureau Chief of the Connecticut Mirror, and I host podcasts here at the CT Mirror. And actually, I, I want to draw your attention to a few things. If you go to ctmirror.org, the first thing I should tell you is the new redesign of the site is excellent. And you can find all the stories that have been written throughout this legislative session very easily. But you can also find in the upper right-hand corner that big red donate button. That is what helps us support all the great independent news that we have here at the Connecticut Mirror. Nonprofit journalism only happens because people support it. Thank you so much for your support in advance of the Connecticut Mirror. The other thing I'll tell you is the new podcast that I have uh, out with Mercy Quay, who is our Sightlines op-ed writer. It's a really interesting deep dive into some of the issues of recovery in our state, a recovery from COVID, of course, but uh, an economic recovery, recovery from opioid addiction, recovery from incarceration, and recovery from a lost education, and also education that costs an awful lot. It's a four-part series this first season. You can check it out. It's called Untold. You can find it under the podcast tab at the top of the ctmirror.org page, or as they say, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's get into our legislative wrap-up. Hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm doing fine, John. Good to see you. It's good to see you, too. It's always, it's always fun to do these sorts of things, and right now is a really good time to recap what happened in the legislature and look ahead. I mean, this is a conversation you and I have been having, I was going to say for years, but it's been decades now. <laughs> Whenever you have an election year, uh, in Connecticut, and probably in just about any state house, what happens during the legislative session really is a prequel to what's going to happen later on in the year around the elections. Talk a little bit more about that right now, if you would, and and how maybe this year is a little bit different given us coming out of COVID, the, the particular mix of people that are happening uh, at the legislature right now. Yeah, absolutely. It, you inevitably look through everything the legislature does in election year through that political uh, framework. And there are some good examples of that this year. Um, things um, where the parties actually cooperated quite well. And then there were things that um, have been and continue to be wedge issues. The party's approach uh, to abortion to a certain degree, um, to spending on climate change issues, although there was some agreement on, uh, on a significant climate change bill. Um, I will say the legislature had um, a fairly productive year, given that it's the short session, election years, it's, it is the, the shorter of the, of the two cycles. Um, it was still somewhat hobbled by COVID rules. Um, the House was more wide open than the Senate was. It was that was interesting uh, to see different rules as you went to different floors of the building. Um, <laughs> and but in, in any event, um, I, you know, let's start with a, a success, right? Because it's so easy to be cynical and and be down on really any elected official. But the Connecticut General Assembly, I think, can legitimately lay claim to tackling some things that the Congress of the United States has punted on. For mm -hmm. You know, one of them is uh, data privacy. And this is a very complicated issue of how you regulate um, how people can buy and sell us. You know, we're online right now. We're, le we're leaving footprints somewhere. Um, I don't think the mirror is, is, uh, is tracking everybody right now, but, but everybody knows every time you pick up your phone, you go online, you are leaving footprints. And uh, some of it is fairly benign. It will take you to places, even ads that perhaps you're interested in. And then some of it is not so benign. So um, Connecticut is now one of a handful of states that has some pretty good rules of the road that for more intrusive um, 
uses of, of uh, apps such as things that can literally track where you are, whether it be Google Maps or Waze, um, you have to opt in. And then there are other things in which you can opt out. And we're seeing this more and more. The industry has started to uh, adopt some of these things um, in part uh, in reaction to uh, European authorities who, quite frankly, have been ahead of the United States on this stuff. But it was, um, it was one of the better debates I've covered in my many years at the Capitol. It was really, um, it was a, a little lecture. It was a little seminar on how this stuff worked. And in fact, uh, a Republican state senator from Bristol, Henry Martin, at the end of it said, you know, I can't wait to go home and tell my <laughs> constituents about this because I think there's a lot to learn. We have learned a lot. And this is one of the most important things I think we'll do this year. So, I mean, that was pretty nice. Well, I think it's, it's nice. It's better, it's better than nice in that it's, it extends a streak that I think Connecticut has had for quite some time in getting out in front of national issues. Now, I think that there's some question uh, when it comes to data privacy, what utility any state law can have when you're talking about uh, European Union having a set of rules and so many of the apps that we're signing up on having to play by a certain set of rules, needing a federal framework for this. I, I don't know what exactly Connecticut has specifically accomplished here, but it sounds as though at least they're taking a leadership role. Yes. Yeah, so um, you're right. The states have different standards um, and the various industry groups were more willing to sit down with Connecticut this time because California has a bill that the industry find, finds to be pretty onerous. And then there are other states that have passed laws, but the privacy advocates say this shouldn't be the standard. So Connecticut and Colorado were two states that the advocates view as more of kind of a Goldilocks situation that, you know, it's not too tough, it's not too lenient. Um, but again, you can't ignore the impact of what the Europeans are doing because, you know, the industry at some point, they always um, resist you know, owner's regulations. But at the end of the day, what they really want is one set of rules. You know, we've seen that in consumer safety labeling laws, right? You know, there'll be an industry that'll say, okay, we don't mind a tougher law, but we don't want Connecticut's law to be, you know, the, the typeface is, is two points different from New York or something. So, you know- It's gonna cost a lot of money to print all those new packages, yes. So, so yes. Um, so California, because by itself, obviously, it's one of the largest economies in the world, um, they tend to be a trendsetter on this stuff. Um, and, you know, certainly in environmental things, which we'll get to in a second, because that's the other area in which Connecticut, uh, the Connecticut General Assembly had a pretty productive year. Uh, it, well, let's talk about that. If you're talking about some of the, the productive things, uh, coming together, doing some climate change legislation, although, as you say, not necessarily paying for the climate change legislation, what did they accomplish this, this time around? Well, a little bit of background. What happened this year, I think, is a reaction to what didn't happen last year. Um, Governor Lamont and advocates tried to uh, get the legislature to sign on to the Transportation and Climate Initiative. And one of the problems with the Transportation and Climate Initiative is um, anyone but uh, the closest observer of this uh, really didn't know what the hell it did, other than the fact that they heard a lot of, of complaints that it was gonna raise gas prices. It was what you can call it a, a, a cap and trade um, instrument or a cap and invest. And basically it would have attached a price to uh, motor fuels that, you know, carbon, that, that generate carbon emissions, CO emissions. And there would have been, payments made that would go into a fund. And I'm doing a horrible job <laughs> of explaining, but I mean, it, it was fairly esoteric. The problem was the only thing I think that people could quickly grasp is, oh, there's a fee. Somebody's going to be paying more money. I'm going to be paying more money at the pump. And there was great 
great uh, disagreements as to how much money it would be. It might be a nickel, might be a dime. There was one study that's been you know, pretty much uh, discredited as high as 38 cents, but some people still say it could be 20, 25. In any event, that was a huge political problem for Governor Lamont and the advocates. This year, there was a really a change in strategy. They really, the advocates really did a good job about casting the bills that they were trying to do by and large in very tangible terms. So one of the clean air bills, you know, they were talking about childhood asthma rates and that, you know, if you could lower the, um, uh, the nitrous oxide, um, the ground level ozone stuff, that that would have a huge benefit. The other thing that was very tangible, there were goals about um, when Connecticut would electrify school buses, um, 2040 at the outside, 2030 in these economic environmental justice districts, places that are uh, impacted by, by bad air basically and, and have other social factors that show these are communities in need. And so that tied in with a couple of things. The Biden administration was sending boatloads of money to help do certain things, you know, build out networks on charging stations. The other thing it, it fed into that wasn't there previously is the fact that the auto industry, most of the automakers have now set their own deadlines for when they want to either be all electric or, or pretty close to it. So all these things kind of came together and you combined it with the disappointments of TCI failing last year. And it really created an environment to do some things. So some of the bills were, were bipartisan. Some of the ones such as the ones that would set a hard deadline for um, having all your school buses go electric. Um, that was more controversial because again, there's gonna be some, it'll, it'll cost money eventually um, because electric buses at this point are still more expensive, although they're a lot cheaper to maintain. Um, so, I mean, I mean, so those were two areas where you had yeah. complex public policy and the Connecticut General Assembly, um, I think actually accomplished some things that are going to serve the state well uh, going forward. For, for those of us who for years have been talking on the radio about making it easier to vote in the state. It was a, it was a good year for, for ballot access. It was. And, you know, they, uh, they got less ambitious and actually did something. What, and what I mean is. Um, <laughs> it, it sometimes it works that way. <laughs> sometimes it works that way. And given who's in an audience for something like this, everybody probably knows, but I'll do the, the quick background thing. Connecticut is unusual in that the state constitution um, really sets the limits of, of when you can vote, um, when you can get an absentee ballot. And that's why um, there have been movements to do constitutional amendments. Um, but when it came to absentee ballots, it turned out that the state laws that implement what's in the Constitution were actually more restrictive than the Constitution itself. So rather than continue the hand-wringing on the inability to get a supermajority to instantly put a constitutional uh, referendum on the ballot, on absentee ballots, they said, hey, let's just, let's just change the state laws. So the changes are, um, if you are a commuter, under the, under the law previously, you had to be out of town for all the hours of voting. So in other words, from six in the morning to eight at night. And the reality of modern commutes is, okay, you know, somebody down in Fairfield County is catching a train at 6.30. Did they really have a chance to go vote at six in the morning? And then if you're not getting back till 7.30 or so at night, you're supposed to rush to the school and get in line. So, I mean, the, it's a practical matter. So they change it to, if you're gonna be out of town on election day, you can vote by absentee. You don't have to kill yourself to get back, back to town. And then the other big change is um, <laughs> using uh, sickness as an excuse. It doesn't have to be you being ill. You can be a caregiver for somebody who's chronically ill. Um, or you know, a child, a parent, or whatnot. And that also is 
uh, a change that will help a lot of people who would have to go find somebody to sit with a loved one who, who does, you know, long-term care for folks. So those are two very practical things, not the biggest deals in the world, um, but they are a step towards uh, easier absentee voting. It's not no excuse. You still must check off a box, but all this stuff may be somewhat um, a, a moot point depending what happens in the fall, because there is a question on the ballot about early voting. So Connecticut, depending on how you all vote in November, uh, Connecticut may have the ability to do early voting. Um, and that would obviously be a, a great, great help for a lot of people. It is more and more uh, what other states are doing. Um, the, what would happen in the fall is the constitution would be changed. So the legislature would then have the ability to sort of set the rules for, um, you know, how early indeed you would allow, would it just be the weekend before that kind of thing? But, you know, I think most people think it's, it's about time to do at least the weekend before. Um, and, it, and, you know, particularly if you could do it in a way that's not a huge expense to municipalities. And, and could this all be in place by the 2024 election? The Yes, the early voting, absolutely. Um, and the, the modest change to absentee ballot voting. There, if the legislature votes, the legislature has voted once, but not by, there are two ways to get a question on the ballot. Um, you can have a super majority and it only takes once and you put it on. And or you can have successive General Assembly's vote. So the current General Assembly has voted to put an absentee, a no excuse absentee ballot question on the ballot, but it will require the next General Assembly to also do that. So the earliest that could be on the ballot. Um, let me see if that. Yes, it would. It would not be next year. It would be. It would be the next statewide election. So that would be 2024. And that would just be the question. So as far as no excuse absentee ballots, you're probably looking at 2026. Yeah. All right. And, and yeah, and, and that's and that's if everything goes according to plan. Uh, our friend Kathy Flaherty has a question. She says, what do you see as lost opportunities, things they could and should have done, but didn't because it's a short session or an election year or whatever other reason? And thank you, Kathy. Well, yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I know some of Kathy's interests, but I, I think in the nonprofit world, and I don't know that it was a function of, of time as much as, well, a little bit of function of time. The, the question of, of how to broaden um, what's available to the nonprofits. You know, this was, um, Connecticut is in the uh, unfamiliar situation of, of having big surpluses. Now, the legislature in 2017 passed a volatility cap. It's a recognition that Connecticut's reliance on the income tax means that when things are going well, the money really comes in. When they're not going well, uh, there's a problem. So it's kind of been feast or famine for Connecticut, more famine than not. Um, but you know we're, we're this is our third year of having surpluses, and because of the spending cap, the volatility cap, um, there's a lot of money that went to pay down um, Connecticut's uh, huge um, pension debt, unfunded pension liability. Um, that piece alone is like 41 billion dollars, and Connecticut paid 3.6 billion into it, and that's that's not just. Um, paying down a debt, but that has immediate consequences for social services, because what that means is the annual debt service or, or annually required contribution will be less next year. And that's one of the impacts of Connecticut's awful mishandling of its, its pensions that the, and I call it the debt service, but it went from, you know, single digit percentages to, I think it was close to 20%. Um, so I think this was a disappointing session for some of the nonprofits. Some were, uh, some were helped out on some reimbursements, but there's still, that's an area in which there's still a, a fair amount of, uh, of need. Um, Connecticut has shifted at, um, more and more social services to nonprofits to one degree or another. Um, 
they did do um, some things to help with childcare and whatnot, but that's a continuing issue. So yeah, I, um, I, I didn't study for that question on the test, Kathy. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but, I, but amongst the things that happened with, with the budget this year, I, I, you expect that that's going to continue to be uh, a source of conversation uh, for not only the governor's race, but also for legislative races. For instance, um, there was an expectation, that not just that social service uh, agencies might, might get more money, uh, amongst some, but there was a real expectation that people who worked in nursing homes, grocery stores, some of the, the people who were forced to work during the early days of COVID were going to get a little bit more out of all this surplus than they actually ended up getting. What else can you tell us about the, the things that did and didn't come out of this budget that may continue to be an issue throughout the course of this year? Well, I mean, you're going to hear a continuing uh, discussion or argument between uh, Ned Lamont and Bob Stefanowski, his Republican opponent, regarding um, uh, the tax cuts. There were, uh, you know, it was somewhere north of $600 million in tax relief. Um, you can quickly get into how you keep score as to really what it's worth. Was it the biggest? Um, but one thing is clear that, you know, come August, um, there is going to be money going out the door for child credits and, and, and whatnot. And this is, um, we haven't seen this since, you know, John Rowland's re-election campaign in 1998, where um, people got rebate checks. It was like, a, was a hundred bucks? How much was it? You know, I, there are two things I'm trying to find. One was the exact amount. And the other one was, did it just have his name on it or did it have his picture? <laughs> somebody, so, somebody knows these, these I seem to remember being a hundred dollars. I guess I don't remember the name of the picture, but, but it's, um, but yeah. So is it, was it this cynical election year politics? You know, the governor's gotten criticism for a couple of things, you know, um, could he have done more? And then on the flip side, or are you doing this to just get credit with voters? Um, the interesting thing is um, there was a Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac rediscovered Connecticut uh, last week. It's their first poll, I think, in Connecticut poll in two years. And I, I missed them because they, they, they do a decent poll. They're well regarded. Um, and what they found, even in good times, um, a, de a Democratic mayor, the best, I mean, governor, the, the best you seem to get as far as an approval rating on the budget is like a 50-50 split. I think it was 43-44. Um, which is interesting, given that you know Dan, you know I think six of Dan Malloy's eight years, um, you know the revenues came in shy of the projections made by the nonpartisan uh, analyst. I mean, you know Dan Malloy just, you know he just had had the toughest toughest run of of any governor in in recent decades. Uh, but you know Lamont has been the you know he's been in uh, the right place at the right time, although there are, you know, there are countervailing trends on this stuff, right? You know, when you are governor and the money's coming in, generally speaking, um, voters uh, are favorably disposed. But the flip side is uh, inflation is scary. This is the highest inflation we've seen in 40 years. <coughs> Excuse me. And, you know, Bob Stefanowski is calling it the uh, Lamont Biden inflation. Um, I don't know if he goes to Massachusetts, he'll call it the Baker Biden inflation as well. But but that's 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 the way the game is played. You know, the the whoever has the governor's office in good economic times probably gets more credit than they deserve. And then when it goes bad, uh, probably more blame. You know, governors are not in a position to really uh, do much to inflation, given if you look at what's happening nationally and internationally. Um, but you know, the, the yeah. governor was pretty realistic. I interviewed him last week on that. And I said, how much credit should you get on the fiscal, the, the fact that the state is, uh, has surpluses, it's socking money away to the rainy day fund and it's paying down the debt. And, you know, and he said, you know, 70 to 80% is really the, the general economic uh, trends, which right now are pretty good. Unemployment's low. Uh, the GDP in Connecticut is growing. And yes, um, Connecticut, like other states, is the recipient of uh, you know rail cars of cash that Washington has sent out uh, 
or under the ARPA program. Uh, and I want to get to some more in that Quinnipiac poll and talk a little bit more about the, the politics of this upcoming year in just a moment. Once again, I will just remind you that at the bottom of your screen, there is a Q&A function. There's a little button there and you can click that. You can put your questions in there. I'm going to try to get to a few of them uh, right now. Our friend Bilal Saku, a Connecticut Mirror board member and a professor at the University of Hartford, Go Hawks as he likes for me to say, uh, says three election reform issues failed, a steady bill for ranked choice voting, banning foreign money from elections, and a voting rights bill. Any thoughts about why they failed? Yes, a little bit. Um, time was a factor here. Um, foreign contributions have not been an issue in Connecticut. Um, the ranked choice, ranked choice isn't going to mean much in Connecticut until the parties agree, I think, on changing the rules of how they do their primaries, who can vote. Um, it, uh, ranked choice, um, you know, I thought a case was made four years ago when the Republicans had a five-way primary for governor. And it easily could have been a seven-way, depending on how close people were to qualifying at a convention and how you know other people could have petitioned the way on. And I don't think anybody wants to see um, a major party nominate somebody you know with you know thirty percent of the vote. Um, so you know, ranked Connecticut is very slow to change how it elects people. You know, Connecticut. You know, Connecticut's access to primaries. It's it's much better than it was when I started my career, but it's still pretty tough. 15% threshold at a convention is the easiest way. And then there, there are ways you can petition. Um, um, it is possible. Bob Stefanowski, the nominee four years ago, didn't even go to the convention. He just petitioned his way on and won a primary. And that was, that was a first in Connecticut. Um, and then the voting rights one, um, there was the... The, the piece about, I, you know, I think what Bilal may be referring to is the piece about, um, you know, the rights of inmates to have their voting rights restored and how, and it just didn't seem to generate a lot of interest among people on the GAA committee, the Government Administration Elections Committee, and I'm not sure why. Um, I can tell you that in the short session, the committee chairs a lot of times are told you know, pick one or two things you really want to push. And we saw that in labor. The labor committee produced a lot of bills, but it was pretty clear to me early on that the only one that really had a really good shot was the captive audience bill, which did get final passage this year. The other one they were hoping for was a fair scheduling um, bill, uh, and then there were a bunch of others, including a bill that passed the Senate that had no chance of it getting final passage, which would have provided unemployment benefits to strikers. So you do have that dynamic. Sometimes you see a lot of stuff come out of committee, and he, and but they know it's it's not going to go. Sometimes it's let's get it through, have public hearings, let's see where the opposition is, and then come back uh, next year. And I, I think I think you'll you'll see that those bills come back next year. We have a couple of related questions here. Peter uh, writes, I heard Matt Ritter say he wants committee chairs with a strong bent toward bipartisanship is this typical of recent House leaders. And Williams says, because of some of the modest successes this year during the legislative session, do you believe that we may be moving toward more cross-aisle cooperation? No. Um, what I think... <laughs> what you I said think, that very quickly, didn't you? Well, it... <sighs> I think what you will see is yeah. a continuation of um, the very adult leadership of Matt Ritter, the Democratic speaker, and Vinnie Candelora, the Republican uh, minority leader. They, um, the House worked as efficiently as I've ever seen it. Um, there, were, there were no overnights. Um, they, they kept business moving and they did so by, um, when you're the majority party, you want to keep the minority party uh, informed. You want to show them that measure of respect um, because the real power the minority has is to talk and to delay. And so I think you saw a very good working relationship between Matt Ritter and Vinnie Candelora. Um, now, 
we do have one really great example of bipartisan cooperation because it was the only way it was going to happen. Um, pay raises. For the first time in 20 years, the Connecticut General Assembly passed a bill that increases pay for legislators and statewide constitutional officers. And that was done in a way that was completely choreographed. Um, the leadership you know, decided that at the very end of the session, now this, there had been a public hearing, so this wasn't one of those quickie things that nobody had seen, but there was a public hearing that didn't get much attention because generally when you see a proposal for pay raises, um, and if you're somebody like me, you know, you tend to roll your eyes and go, yeah, right. But because of the fiscal situation, things being, you know, positive, and yes, there are structural problems that remain and Connecticut could have problems, you know, three years out. But the decision was, let's push it. If, it's, if we're not going to do it now, it's been 20 years. So they did raise the base pay for legislators and they pegged uh, the pay for uh, governor uh, to that of the chief justice of the Supreme Court. So the governor's salary will go from 150 to 200 and something. Um, and um, for a rank and file lawmaker it was 28 to 40. Um, and for the other statewides went from 110 to about 189. Again, pegging it to judicial raises. Um, governor signed it. The governor does not take um, a salary. The governor, as most of people on this call well understand, uh, he is independently wealthy and he can afford to forego that. But not everyone can, obviously. And to have a, an attorney general being paid $110,000, um, which would put him well, well down in the pay scale of <clears throat> lawyers, the attorney general's office, or anybody in private practice, you know, you can understand why it was time to, to make a move on that. And doesn't seem like much political blowback on that. No. And it was, it was funny because this is something that people just generally don't want to touch, right? So in the Senate, Marty Looney, the Senate president, who always gets the last word, nobody had their light on to speak. So Looney, Looney gets up and he's looking around. Does anybody want to say anything? Nothing. So he gave, <laughs> he, he gave a very quick speech and off they went. And in the House, it was also uh, quick, uh, but it was interesting. Um, one of the most conservative members of the General Assembly, uh, a guy named Doug Dubitsky from Eastern Connecticut, um, he, gave, he gave the speech in favor to say, you know, it's time. And so that sort of gave people cover. The, the, the vote was weighted more Democrats than Republicans, but there were enough, there's a magic number. I don't know what it is, but there's a magic number in Matt Ritter's head that if, if there weren't that many Republican votes, it wasn't gonna go. And they, they got that number. Uh, House, the House Minority Leader, Kendall Laura, was among those who voted for it. So I, don't, I think there's a gentleman's agreement that you're not gonna hear a lot about that on the uh, campaign trail, at least, uh, at least with incumbents. Well, speaking of the campaign trail, let's, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the legislature before we get into the governor's race. So Wynn writes, I believe there's been a relatively large number of reps retiring after the session and before the next election cycle. What's your take on the makeup of the upcoming post-election session? Uh, a few people have asked questions about this. What, what do you think is big picture going to happen with the, with the shape of the legislature in November pass? So we, we had a pretty solid trend for a long time. Um, the Democrats had a blowout in 2008, but the Republicans um, staged a great comeback in 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016. And unlike national Republicans, they pretty much um, avoided the hot button issues, the so-called, you know, God, gays and guns, and really talked about fiscal responsibility, economic growth and stuff like that. And they pulled to an 1818 tie in the Senate and like five or six short of a majority in the House. And then came Donald Trump. And, you know, the Republicans did fine in 2016 when Donald, the, uh, the idea of a Donald Trump presidency was more of an abstraction. But at the midterm in 2018, things turned and they turned big. Um, so one of the questions is, what is 
did that accelerate a trend that was happening? Um, and what I'm talking about is some of the safe Republican areas of Connecticut, you know, the wealthier towns of Fairfield County, they had been trending Democratic. Um, some of the Eastern Connecticut towns that had been kind of blue collar Democrats had been trending Republican. Well, with Trump, it, it all seemed to accelerate. But the, the short-term impact was big majorities for the Democrats in 2018, again in 2020. Um, and you know, when people say, why should anger at Donald Trump affect a General Assembly race? Well, it affects it not because of an attitude towards a certain um, legislative or certain party in my view, but what it does do, it changes the electorate. It changes who the hell shows up on election day. Yeah. In 2018, you had a lot of uh, people who were energized. And so the, the, the question that you need to answer uh, before you can try to predict what the next General Assembly looks like is who's going to show up? Um, you have another horrific school shooting. Who does that energize? Who does that uh, discourage? Um, the Supreme Court obviously is uh, going to be handing down a decision on abortion. The draft that was leaked shows it would be an, an incredible game changer. It would undo 50 years of Roe v. Wade. Um, the polling, uh, Quinnipiac and elsewhere, shows that it is a motivating factor for people who lean Democratic. Um, so those are, those are two kind of X factors. And these are things that a year ago, um, I don't think, maybe abortion because of just the, the direction of the court. But you know, these are things that you wouldn't think are definitely gonna dominate, but, but they're, they're factors. They're factors. And then the other thing as always is just pocketbook issues. And that's what Quinnipiac showed. That's what really every um, national poll shows is, you know, um, fears of recession, fears of inflation, and general um, annoyance about taxes um, are the, tend to be the top three things that move voters. And then the you know these other issues will be again, how does it change what the electorate looks like on election day in 2022? And I want to actually get to those pocketbook issues in a second. I will say on the abortion issue, uh, Connecticut uh, lawmakers though did provide some more protections post Roe versus Wade. I mean, this is something that that Connecticut has been looking at. How do we protect people who may be coming here from other states who may be operating here in Connecticut and um, they're seeing patients from other states? This is a, a, a somewhat interesting piece of legislation and landmark in some ways. Yes, um, it, it does two things. One is fairly minor. Um, the minor piece is it make state law conform with what was an opinion of the attorney general's office about who can perform abortions, um, mainly in the, in the first trimester, you know, the, the abortions that are done in clinics, uh, advanced practitioners, APRNs and, and the like. Um, and then the other piece was what's been called sort of a safe harbor uh, law that provides certain protections to um, people who come to Connecticut and get abortions and as well as the providers. And it, it was a reaction to what has been termed the vigilante um, anti-abortion laws of places like, you know, Texas, um, where, you know, almost anybody would have a, a potential cause of action against somebody who obtained an abortion um, beyond a certain time period. And in Texas, it was, it was fairly um, early um, part of that change. Uh, in Connecticut, it's, you know, Connecticut has codified the tenets of, of Roe v. Wade, which essentially are uh, abortion shall remain legal until viability. You know, most, in, you know, something like 90, 92% of all abortions are done in the first 20 weeks. Um, most of the debate sort of focuses on, the, on late terms and when they should be allowed, as well as things like parental notification or consent, um, which will be, which is a, a wedge issue in Connecticut, Lamont, as opposed to parental notification. What the argument is that parental notification really becomes parental consent. 
um, that it sounds good, but the reality is there are families in which um, children and their parents do not have that viable uh, relationship. On the other hand, you know, Bob Stefanowski says, look, if your 15 year old needs permission to, you know, get a tooth extracted or, or, or a minor procedure, they should also need to at least notify their parents. So you'll be hearing more about that this summer. Uh, getting back to some of these pocketbook issues and other results of that, that, that Quinnipiac poll, obviously economic issues are something that always drive people to the polls. You have inflation, whether or not that's something that any governor of any state can control, it is still something that an opponent will levy against him. We have high gas prices, of course, same, same boat. Given all that, are you surprised by a, a, a fairly large lead in the most recent Quinnipiac poll that Ned Lamont has over Bob Stefanowski? No, not the Quinnipiac poll. I mean, eight, eight points feels about right. And people should know eight points can disappear <laughs> in a hurry. Single digits are still single digits, particularly in May or June of an election year where, where most of us have not paid close attention. Um, you know, I, I compared to this midterm or, or this poll to the one in 2014 at the same time of year. When, because um, it's kind of a funny situation. We have a rematch with Lamont and Stefanowski. And eight years ago, it was a rematch between Tom Foley and Dan Malloy. And Ned Lamont is doing much better than, Bob, than Dan Malloy was in 2014. But Tom Foley and Bob Stefanowski, if you look at those two polls, and I, I mentioned it in a story about uh, Lamont that ran yesterday, it's eerie. It's like they're within a point of each other as far as unfavorable, favorable, and people who don't know who the hell he is. And it was it's exactly the same. So what does that say? Does that say that this is sort of generally the dynamic? Um, and remember, in 2014, that race, it wasn't as close as 2010 when it was, you know, 6,400 votes, something like that, separating the two, the two candidates. But it still was close. And even though Connecticut is a strongly blue state, Ned Lamont only won by three points over Bob Stefanowski um, four years ago. So, so no, that I'm, I was not surprised that um, that you know at that margin, it, ju it just felt about right. As we've said, though, uh, Ned Lamont certainly has uh, more favorable fiscal conditions at his back. The ability with a surplus to be able to hand out money give money to people for things and also pay down this, this uh, enormous debt at the same time. So he's got that going for him. He also has something going for him that I think is just a reality. And this is what you wrote about in your, your most recent piece, uh, calling him Ned Lasso. I mean, he's a, he's kind of an affable guy that doesn't seem to get flustered by people throwing barbs at him. And he doesn't really fight back in the same way. I mean, you know, you wouldn't really want to be stuck in a corner with Dan Malloy, but you sort of feel like if you're stuck in a corner with Ned Lamont, you could come to some sort of an arrangement, you know? And I don't know how much uh, a big part of it that is, but I know it's something that you've been following very closely. It, Yeah, that's one of the intangibles. And I, you know, I soft think skills, they call them. Yes. <laughs> I think there's something there. And um, interest, interesting because I thought as COVID has continued to go on, I thought the governor's approval rating on his handling of COVID would, would fall. And he still gets a 70% approval rating on his handling of, of COVID. But the fact that his overall approval is more like 50, um, now disapproval is no, it's not like it's a 50-50 thing. It was, I don't know, 50-36 or something. But, but that to me says that Connecticut voters have kind of moved on from COVID, right? And um, yeah, you know, I liked how they rolled out the vaccinations. Um, now, certainly, there, there were there were miscues, and uh, you know the question of how nursing homes were handled, how quickly Connecticut responded to that. Uh, you know, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut—they're all and Massachusetts—they're all kind of in the, in the same boat. But you know, it was it was not unalloyed success. Let's put it that way. Um, but. Yeah, I think I think Lamont's personality helps a little bit, but but you know the Ned La the Ted Lasso thing, 
<laughs> I mean, he said it as a joke, but the more it went on, the more you realize that this is how he wants to govern. He wants everybody to kind of come together. He loves to do stuff in a bipartisan way. He will be partisan, but it's his last option. Um, and and there's, there's, there's a ring of truth. You know, there's always an element of, of wisdom and insight in how people joke. And I think that's the case in, in the governor saying, Ted Lasso is my guy. But remember, the downside of that is, if, if you are fans of the show, there's a lot of, of at, nice attributes, Ted Lasso. But the thing you also have to remember is he was totally freaking clueless about the game he was hired to manage. <laughs> so, so there's a mixed bag in that imagery. Yes, it, they, fair, fair enough. Um, what is the way this time around that Bob Stefanowski kind of a, approaches this, given this affable governor with an eight-point lead, uh, the fiscal wins at his back somewhat, no major errors that he has to recover from, uh, no real specific differences on a whole range of important social issues. And as a matter of fact, Stefanowski probably has to answer more questions about the Republican Party and some of those social issues in Connecticut than certainly a Ned Lamont would have to. What does this campaign look like over the course of the next couple of months compared to the campaign that we saw last time around with these two? Well, Bob Stefanowski has not been nearly as accessible as the governor, and that's not um, that unusual. Um, you know, the challenger tends to focus on getting through the convention. Uh, in his case, he, he didn't really have any serious opposition, but he was pretty cautious about what he was talking about. He did not want to get into any deep dive interviews about climate change, about abortion, about gun control um about um what he would cut you know he talks about making government more efficient and you know he was asked that the other day at his first press conference after the convention and what would he cut and he said he talked about fraud it's like okay you know there's i've i've been do, i've been doing this for a long time i've never really found who the lobbyist is for waste fraud and inefficiency i'm sure there's somebody there but they're pretty low key. So that's always a, that was always an easy target. So the challenge will be, you know, to kind of flesh out where Bob Stefanowski would make changes um, in a concrete way. Ned Lamont will not face those same questions because he's got a record. You know, we know what his record is on taxes. We, uh, he has signed uh, bills on the minimum wage, um, various economic development things, uh, a host of environmental things. Uh, he's vetoed bills. So it's a little bit easier to get a handle on, on Lamont in very concrete ways. Um, Bob Stefanowski so far has been pretty cautious. He, on abortion, he did make a clear statement about he supports a woman's right to choose and he would not favor changing the state's law codifying Roe with the exception of a parental notification um, law. But on the other hand, he um, he does avoid going deeper. Um, and that law that we talked about a little bit earlier, the safe harbor law, um, even though his running mate, Laura Devlin, voted for it and his opponent, Ned Lamont, signed it, um, he won't say, he won't state in a position on it, other than mm. the fact he wouldn't do anything to change it. And, you know, he said, well, that's a hypothetical. Well, when you're a challenger, everything is a hypothetical. It gets to your values. So he's going to have to decide where he digs in on saying that's a hypothetical. You know, it's, uh, I think, on abortion, the safest place for Republicans, because their base is more divided than the Democratic base is, is my sense in Connecticut, um, that there's real risk in going too far either way. Whereas for the Democrats, the safest thing is to pronounce yourself to be pro-choice and just move on. Um, so, you know, he, he will be pushed on, really, is that a hypothetical? You know, it was similar to Tom Foley um, four, not four years ago, eight years ago in 2014. Uh, he didn't wanna talk about the Sandy Hook gun law because he had a shot at the vote of gun owners in a way that Dan Malloy didn't. 
On the other hand, you know, the state really was comfortable, I think, to a large degree with the Sandy Hook law, which, you know, that it's universal background checks to purchase a firearm, um, limiting the access of certain military style weapons. You can still get a form of an AR-15 in Connecticut, by the way, but you can't get the large capacity magazine and the ammunition uh, it can fire is not of the same uh, same power as, as the rounds that other AR-15s can fire. And that's unfortunately, that's why you've seen such carnage in these shootings in schools and other places when AR-15s is the weapon of choice. You know, they, they, mm. they have, they are high capacity weapons and they fire essentially what's a military round. It's a high velocity round that um, as we saw in Sandy Hook, you know, there were not wounded people coming out. There were, there were bodies being taken out. If, if abortion and gun control are two things that might energize people, as we talked about before, enthusiasm, whether it's in the governor's race or in any of the legislative races, that is something that some Democrats may have on their side. Uh, Doris writes, writes a note here that I think is, is something to note. We'd already mentioned that uh, maybe not as much money went towards social services as many people thought could have over the course of this last year as money was coming down from Washington and we were dealing with a surplus. And Doris also says, look, a lot of people in the disability community kind of won't forget anytime soon the problems with vaccine distribution, uh, the, the problems with the way in which that was rolled out over the course of the early part of COVID. I'm not sure if that's something, Paz, that you feel like sticks to Ned Lamont, oh, but I there think- are certainly people who, who feel very strongly that that was not handled very well and not handled sensitively at all. No, there's something there as far as enthusiasm. And, and you know, if you look at the Democratic Party as this grand coalition, right, of, you know, urban, urban voters, minority voters, labor, um, you know, disability advocates and, and people with disabilities. And there is a fear in the Democratic Party that Ned Lamont, absent what we've seen in exterior things, you know, concerns over abortion, gun control, all these external things that are coming into it. But as far as Ned Lamont himself, um, yes, he's affable, but he has not generated great enthusiasm in um, the more liberal um, reaches of the Democratic Party. He has been absolutely opposed to making uh, the income tax more progressive. Um, there has been great tension with the left on that. And, you know, when you look at, um, uh, you know, the Black community, there's there's been grumbling about is enough attention been paid? Is um, the federal relief money going to the right places? Um, so there is that on the rollout of the vaccines, I think history will, with all due respect to Doris and, and, and people who were angry about how it was handled, I think history is going to, um, treat him well on that because the states that tried to have these great gradations about what physical conditions would get you to the top of the list, it became incredibly complicated. And a lot of the states just bogged down and Connecticut made the decision. They're going to start with the oldest and just go. And I think it went much smoother here as, as a result, you know, the CDC guidelines, for example, you know, if you had a body mass index of, I think it was 31. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sorry, that's, that's, that's more than half of America, I think. And so how you would pick and choose as opposed to age. Um, and, and again, I understand the, the, um, the resentment if you were a frontline worker, um, you know, at the local stop and shop and you were 25 and you had to wait to get a vaccination. I get it. I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong to feel that way. They did, you know, really the only area in which they made the exception about professions was obviously healthcare, you know, nursing homes, um, residents and workers um, were the front of the line and then other healthcare workers as well. 
we have just a couple minutes left and just a few minutes left to talk about the one thing we didn't talk about because we were talking about state legislature and we're talking about the governor's race. The Senate race is very interesting. Bill asks regarding the Senate race, who on the Republican side do you think has the best chance against Blumenthal? Um, and I don't know, Paz, is this just as simple as who has the best chance or is this really something about how Connecticut's GOP is going to work this year and how it's going to come out of this whole Senate race? Yeah, I mean, this really could be one of those primaries that sort of uh, says something about the soul of the Republican Party, the, the state of mind of a Republican Party. You know, uh, you got to remember that Donald Trump won the Republican primary in Connecticut handily. So it's not that the whole Republican Party in Connecticut was turned off by Donald Trump. That's not true. And it's a divided party in that respect. So this is fascinating, right? The Republican state convention nominated, and I can't believe this really didn't get more attention nationally, but they endorsed uh, a woman who is in favor of gay rights, uh, abortion rights, voted for the Sandy Hook gun controls, and publicly has acknowledged she did not vote for Donald J. Trump in 2020. And then you have two other people who are very loyal to Donald Trump and are more conservative. They are anti-abortion, um, by and large, anti-gun control. Um, so there's going to be there's going to be a choice. Now it's a choice in a three-way. So that could help Themis Claritas, who is the endorsed candidate. But that's going to be interesting to watch. And then the other part of this is um, Dick Blumenthal. That that Quinnipiac poll showed some vulnerability. It reflected some internal polls that. I have been told about is, which is that he's not losing in any of the matchups, certainly to a Republican, but his approval rating is not what it was. It's not quite as robust as it, what it's been in other years. And so that's something that, you know, is kind of a nagging worry for um, Democrats of, of, you know, somebody who's been around in public office for, for 40 years or so and is in his seventies. And you never know when, you know, people reach a tipping point and, and again, to, you know, to state the obvious, it's a very volatile time. So, you know, what exactly grabs voters at, at what moment will be interesting. I, now, and I'll just say but, but very quickly, Paz, what, what is fascinating about this is I think many of us who've watched Connecticut politics for some time would say that probably the only way to unseat someone like Richard Blumenthal would be to run a candidate who's a woman who's pro-gay rights, who's pro-abortion rights, who who does not vote for Donald Trump in a general election. But there is actually going to be a, a Republican primary, and a Republican primary is very difficult for that candidate, even in Connecticut. Right. And so she she may have trouble in the primary. She, I think, clearly would be the, the more competitive candidate, if, if only for also her experience. I mean, this is a woman who has run for uh, state house representatives every two years and won it. Um, so she's an experienced campaigner. Um, she, she likes to mix it up. Um, but one of the obstacles if Themis Claritas is the nominee, despite the fact that she may be closer to sort of mainstream, uh, voters in Connecticut on social issues is the fact a vote for her is going to be described as a vote for Mitch McConnell as the Senate Majority Leader. Now, now that was attempted in 1982 when Toby Moffat was running against Lowell Weicker, and nobody gave a damn because the boogeyman then was Jesse Helms, who was the Senate Foreign Relations Chair, and and you know Toby couldn't make that work. But this is very real. Mitch McConnell is the guy who is now identified as delivering a very conservative Supreme Court of bottling up. 400 house bill of uh, bills that pass the house and are sitting on the Senate calendar. And so Themis Claritas is going to have to overcome that, that a vote for her is a vote for Mitch. Mark Pazniokas is the Capitol Bureau Chief of the Connecticut Mirror. Paz, it is always good to see you. Thanks so much for spending uh, time with not just me, but all of these folks who are on the Zoom call tonight. Well, thanks everybody for, for watching. Uh, the hour went quickly, at least on my end. I want to thank Kyle Constable from the Connecticut Mirror, who helps to make these things possible. Of course, thanks to the executive editor, Beth Hamilton, and the publisher, Bruce Putterman. As I said at the start of this program, nonprofit journalism that the Mirror does can only happen because of your support. So click that red donate button at the upper 
right corner of the ctmirror.org page if you would like to donate. Also, please check out my new podcast with Mercy Quay. It's produced by my longtime WNPR colleague, Harriet Jones. It's called Untold. We go deep into some of the issues of recovery in this really important year in our history. I think that the stories are fascinating and we hear from some people that you don't get a chance to hear from in the news very often. So please check out Untold either on our site or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a good night, everyone. Take care. Be safe.